We're going to look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, and I'm going uh, to read uh, a portion of Scripture as we begin our time. I'm going to read verse, actually just one verse, verse 29, uh, for time's sake, but we're going to look at the whole chapter together. If you would stand and read reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29, hear the word of Christ. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Oh God, we hear those words and we hear of the everlasting one, your glory made flesh, Jesus Christ. And God, we praise you today that never once has Jesus regret it, what he has done for us. Never once has he been ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because of his shed blood, because of the resurrection, because of the promise that you have given us in him. He does not regret to stand here with us today and speak. And God, I pray as he speaks, our hearts and our lives would be changed. God, we, we have an opportunity to come before your word and to to peer into the glories of the gospel, the authority and power of a king who is Jesus, who has called us to himself, who has purchased us by his blood. And God, I pray that we would not take that for granted. This is amazing. This is glorious. And God, I pray today for all of us it would be life-changing. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. may be seated. If I confess, I will ruin the lives of hundreds of people. I'd spent what seemed to be several hours with a man who had been accused of some serious sin. And it was myself and some other men who had confronted him of what was going on in his life. And this seemed to be his last line of defense. If I confess this sin, I'm going to ruin hundreds of lives, people who depend upon me. The reality was he had to confess something. He had been caught in sin. And yet we had spent so much time just counseling and pleading and encouraging as he fought back this confession. And we we knew it was there. We knew what was coming. But he just couldn't do it. The confrontation began with him saying, you know, I thought she needed a friend. And I know I made some mistakes in our friendship. And then we pressed a little further. And he said, you know, I got too close to her emotionally. We were were emotionally bond it. And, and maybe I was unfaithful emotionally. And then we pressed a little further and he said, yeah, there was some physical contact that was inappropriate, but, but nothing that serious. And, and by the way, by the way, it, it was her fault. I mean, she, she was so needy and I, I really think she set me up. We pressed a little further And then finally, it all came out. 
finally, it all came out. But those are probably the hardest moments as a pastor. I can't think of any other moments that are that hard watching someone just cling so tightly to their kingdom. A kingdom that they have built in their mind, that they have constructed these walls up that sort of insulate them, that make them king, that make them untouchable, that in their mind, in their heart, prove that they are right, that there's nothing wrong with what's going on in their life. Can you imagine if I confess this heinous sin, I will ruin other people's lives? There are other people involved. Can, can you imagine thinking that way? He was grieved, but he wasn't really grieved about his sin. He was grieved about his kingdom. And, and as I've sat over the last 20 years in countless meetings like that, it's always the same pattern of just hedging and tearing down walls. I've learned a lot of things about my own heart. Because maybe I've never been accused of such things. But even in the tiniest sins in my own life, I do the same thing. The, the tiniest thoughts, emotions, actions in my own life that I say aren't really a big deal. Well, that's someone else's fault. Well, if I change course in this way, I'm going to hurt other people. And we all sort of insulate ourselves in our own kingdoms to protect ourselves. When the word comes, so often we want to push the word away so we can stay safe in our own little castles. And we see that's the very thing that Saul does in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Saul is the king the people chose. God was their king, but they wanted a trophy king. They wanted a king who would fight their battles for them, a king of appearance, a king they could brag about to the other nations. And God finally relents and gives them Saul, and he is a very bad king. Saul is not a man after God's own heart. He is a man after Saul's own heart. And a few chapters ago, he forces himself on the offerings of God for his own benefit to use God like a rabbit's foot. And the Spirit of God leaves him. In the last chapter, Saul is very passive. Jonathan is out fighting. And the people of God leave Saul. And in this chapter, what we see is the Word of God is going to leave Saul. Samuel is the prophet from the very beginning, that was raised up by God to point to the king we need, but to point us to the king we need, he has shown us very vividly that Saul is not the king we need. And we come to chapter 15, and it's as if the last stone of his kingdom is standing. And we find this king of Israel with great power clinging to the last rock as God is pulling it away. And through it all, he thinks he's right. This is not something he has done wrong. And why does he do that? First of all, we see the reason we all cling to our kingdoms in that way. Because by nature, we worship ourselves. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, Samuel first comes to him. And I'm going to summarize these verses. He comes to him and he says, Saul, God 
made you king by his word. I'm the prophet who preaches the word. I came to you and told you you were king. So you're king by the word of God. That means you must obey the word of God. And now God's got a word for you to obey. And what is that word? Notice verse 3. He says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. The Amalekites. This was a people who were very hostile to Israel. When Israel was first rescued from Egypt, they were carried through the wilderness. The Amalekites preyed upon them. They sort of preyed upon the outskirts, the stragglers. And God had promised at that time, I will wipe that people group off the face of the earth. And now he comes to Saul. And he says, this word that I promised, I want you to execute for me. And notice he says, do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, you have a choice when you read those words. Is that really God's word? Is that a mistake? Why would God say such a thing? And that is a hard word. One of the great things about preaching uh, through the Bible verse by verse is I didn't get to say today, hey, I think I'll skip that verse. Now we have to deal with it. What is, what is going on there? Why would God wipe out a people group? Well, from Genesis 3 on, we all live under grace. As soon as the juice from the fruit dripped onto Adam's face in the garden, what God should have done is wiped us all out. We all live under grace. We, every people group from Genesis 11. Remember the Tower of Babel? The people, they build this tower up to God in pride. Look who we are, God. And instead of God wiping us off the face of the earth, wiping every people group out, he separates us. He scatters us. And then he even redeems that in the church. The nations will be gathered together. But, but we all deserve to be wiped out. And this people... They have sinned against God. They have sinned against God's chosen people. God had promised to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. The Amalekites had cursed Israel and now God is going to execute judgment on them through Saul. And then in verses 4 through 7, Saul says, okay, he assembles a great army, 200,000 plus and he begins to march into battle and he comes across a, a people group called the Kenites and he lets them go free. Those were a people who blessed Israel. And so we see the promise unfolding. Bless those who bless you is what God said to Abraham. He's blessing this people and now he is going to curse the Amalekites. Notice verse 8. Saul goes in and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And he devoted to destruction all the people. Now this word devoted throughout, it, it is a word that is also used for worship. And what Israel was doing here is called holy war. They, they were in some sense worshiping God by executing the justice of God. But they were to do it the way God had commanded they were not to take justice into their own hands. But notice what Saul has already done. He took the king alive. And he devoted destruction on all the people by the edge of the sword. But notice verse 9. But, it's a strong contrast. 
Everything seems to be going well, but Saul and the people spared Agag. And the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all noticed that were good. So they destroyed all of the other animals. They destroyed all of the other people, but they leave the king alive. And and notice all that was good, they did not utterly destroy. But all that was despised and worthless, they devote it to Saul or to destruction. And then notice verse 10. See, at that point we're thinking, well, they kind of obeyed. They did some good things, right? But notice God's response. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, and he said, I regret that I made Saul king. And we would say, hold on. He wiped out women and children, infants, and all of the nasty cows, all of the stinking sheep that were blemished, the three-legged goats. He destroyed those. God, you tell us to do that in worship. He's kept the best for you. And now we have Agag. We can bring him out before the people as this slave and humiliate him. I mean, God, Saul has done some good things. I regret that I made him. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. He did not do all that I said I would do. And notice Samuel's response. He was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. In verse 10, we see into the heart heart of God concerning our sin. There is regret. There is anguish. We even look back in the first chapters of Genesis where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes and sin is in this cycle and the world is spiraling in darkness and despair and God would say, I regret that I made man. God would say that. He would look on the earth at sin and death and say, I regret this. What despair. And look at the picture of Samuel pleading, screaming to the Lord all night. He is in the middle of all of this. Now, God doesn't regret as though he's done something wrong. God's not saying, I did something wrong. Remember, Saul is the consequence of Israel's sin. Israel chose Saul. God allows him to be king. And at this point, God is grieved over the consequences of their sin. In some sense, God would say, I am grieved that they chose Saul as king. And it's just like a parent. When when we discipline our children and we say, okay, if you want to touch that so bad, that stove, go right ahead. And when they touch it, we don't go, yes, woo, glad you did that. No, we go, there you go. You got what you wanted. And we experience that as parents over and over. Okay, you, you want to go through that? All right, I'm going I'm to let you experience and taste the pain of that. And it breaks our heart. God is a father whose heart is broken over Israel's sin. And notice verse 12, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed and went on to Gilgal. Now, there is a contrast here. God's heart is broken that Israel is enduring the consequences of their sin. What is is Saul doing? He's worshiping himself. 
He has set up a monument that says, look what a great military man I am. Y'all praise me. Y'all worship me. Look, look how great I am. In this place, Gilgal was a place of celebration. It's where the people of God celebrated God's deliverance. And now Saul has replaced himself with Yahweh there. And the scene here is eerily similar to when Moses came off the mountain, giving the law to the people. And they're not to have any graven images. They're not to have any idols. They have received the holy word of the Lord. And what are they doing? Worshiping a golden calf. Here the people of God are worshiping a golden Saul. Saul has erected himself as this great king. And what God is saying here in verse 12 is you wanted a king like the other nations. You know what the other nations kings do? They call themselves gods. Pharaohs. There's your Pharaoh. There's, there's your king who loves himself when he looks in the mirror. He loves himself so much that he has a monument of himself erected for you guys to bow down before. He is a king of appearance. And this is, gives us a picture into why we sin. Why did Saul not obey all of God's commandments? Because he loves himself. And that's the same reason you sin. It's the same reason I sin. In our acts of sin, we may not be holding some little doll that looks like ourself. That we walk into, walk into the bedroom and, and put on the dresser and get down and worship. We may not do that. But when we choose what we want because we think we know better than God about what will make us happy, that's self-idolatry. That's trusting in yourself. That's worshiping yourself. Giving yourself over to the God of happiness. What you think is going to make you happy. And God's word is just an opinion. I'm realizing that more and more when I talk to people about the word of God and how sin relates. And there so many people now just think the word of God, it's just his advice to me. God doesn't want me to lie. God doesn't want me to have premarital sex, but that's just kind of like God giving me some good counsel. It's not the authoritative word. It's not that he is holy and he is right and what he says is true and I should obey him. It's just, you know, he's kind of like my advisor. I know I shouldn't complain. I know I shouldn't be angry. God says I shouldn't, but that's just who I am. How often do you say that about yourself? That's just who I am. Well, if you're not God, it's sin. Because only God can do whatever he wants according to just who he is. You can't. But God's just this sort of off-to-the-side counselor. And that's the same. Saul is king. And he doesn't have to listen to God's word because he, as king, judges God's word and he's going to do whatever he wants. Notice verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul and he said, notice what Saul said. Blessed be you to the Lord. This is to be like sitcom funny here. He, he disobeys God. He has his little idol. And here comes the prophet. Hey, buddy, how are you doing? Hey, brother. It's good to see you today. Guess what I've done? I have obeyed God. 
I fulfilled, notice the text says, I fulfilled, I performed the commandment of the Lord. What you told me to do, I did it. And here we find Saul, he's, he's like the kid who, who's in his room and I cleaned it all. There's nothing on the floor. Look at the bed. You walk over to the closet and you open the closet door and everything comes out on the floor. That's Saul. Look. Look, what, look how good I am. I obeyed. And that, listen to the words of Samuel. What then is the bleeding of the sheep? What, what do I hear out back? Are those lambs? What is the lowing of the oxen that I hear? What you hear are the sounds of disobedience. What you hear is Saul thinks he knows better than God. And notice Saul has an excuse. They have brought them from the Amalekites. Notice the emphasis. They did this. I told them. I told them what we were supposed to do. But, but they brought it from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. What you hear, Samuel, are some great offerings out back. We didn't obey God like all the way. But in our disobedience, it was for the Lord. We disobeyed for the Lord. Now it's all making sense, Samuel. We're going to have some great worship services around here. The Amalekites, the way they raise those sheep, the way they raise those oxen, they are fine specimen. And what we're going to do is we're going to have some awesome worship services. We're going to, I mean, the smoke off the flesh of these oxen is going to be amazing. They're the best. Notice, the people, they were doing some wrong things. We should just look over it because they have the greatest animals to sacrifice now. And by the way, the rest, notice, we have devoted to destruction. Again, the word devotion is a word that means worship. We worship the Lord by wiping out the bad, but we kept the good for the Lord. We disobeyed for the Lord. Now, how often do you spiritualize your sin in the same way? Think about the church that says, we don't talk about sin in our worship services. It's, it's too, too dangerous. People won't come back. We... We don't practice the ordinances, the Lord's table and baptism, because those things are really weird. They're archaic. They're kind of cultish. We don't practice church discipline anymore because, oh my goodness, that really is cultish. But guess what? We have large, 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 large crowds every week. And we get to tell a lot of people about Jesus. What do they do? They're spiritualizing their sin. And it's the same thing you do. Some of you say, I'm going to cheat on my taxes this year. You have planned it all year. You are thinking about the ways in which you can cheat and deceive to get more money back on your taxes. But what you say to yourself, I'll still give 10% to the church. If you do that, give 20. <laughs> How about don't do, do that? Some of you will make bad business deals this week. You'll lie to others. But you justify it by saying, I'm going to give it to the church. You see how we spiritualize our sin? Some of us are lazy. We don't have a job. Our, our grades are horrible. But what we tell other people, our parents, oh yeah, I'm just focused on summer missions. 
We spiritualize our sin before God to try to get ourselves off the hook. I'm not engaged in church stuff on Sunday. I'm still a Christian, but God called me to be a family man. Do you see how we do that? Saul says, we disobeyed for the Lord. Notice verse 16, then Samuel said, stop. What, what Samuel says to Saul here is shut up. Now kids, your parents may not let you say that at home, but in the Hebrew, that's exactly what that means. If you say it this week, say I was just using Hebrew. <laughs> Don't say it. <laughs> shut up. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, have you not heard, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, Saul. You're All of a sudden, Saul is confronted with his sin. This guy who is worshiping himself. I'm amazing, I'm amazing. Oh, it wasn't me, it was the people. I'm powerless before the people. The people do whatever they want. And he says, you're acting like you're this little bitty peon all of a sudden. You are just worshiping yourself. That's small of you, Saul. Verse 18. And the Lord sent you on a mission. Go devote to destruction the sinners of the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are consumed. And again, these words, devotion, consumed, it is a picture of sacrifice. They were to worship the Lord through doing this. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Now notice this, voice of the Lord, why did you pounce like an animal on the spoil to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Now notice those two phrases, voice of the Lord and sight of the Lord. When God speaks, he's present. Voice of the Lord equals sight of the Lord. When the word of God comes forth, it is though God is there. He is there. It's not as if. He is there. And he's telling Saul, when God spoke to you, when I spoke to you on behalf of God, it was God face to face telling you what to do. And what you have done, Saul, is you have spit in God's face. You said, I'm going to do it my way. How often do we read our Bibles? We have the memory verses in our head and we know what is right. We've heard it over and over. It echoes in our mind as we choose sin. When we do that, we are spitting in the face of God. I will do what I want to do. Saul says, I'll do what I want to do here. Notice, continues, verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on mission on which the Lord sent me. I gathered the army together. We had a worship service. Israel, you are sent to kill the Malachites. And I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. See, notice this. We read that and we go, what are you talking about, Saul? You did not obey the voice of the Lord. He still doesn't understand his sin. He still thinks he's right because he loves himself. Verse 21, but the people took of the spoil. Again, I told you once, Samuel, it is the people. They took of the spoil. They took of the sheep. The best of things devoted to destruction. They wanted to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now notice he says, your God, not my God. Your people did this so they could worship at Gilgal. But what was going on at Gilgal? They were worshiping Saul. 
He loves himself so much he cannot see his own sin. And what is he doing here? Blame shifting. Blaming somebody else. This is the people's fault. My kids just don't like church. My family just doesn't like church stuff. It's not my fault I don't lead them well. It's not my fault. Somebody else didn't do something. Somebody else said something. Somebody else has made me angry. It's not my fault. The people I work with, they love to gossip. That's all they do is gossip. So if I'm ever going to talk to them, I'm going to have to gossip. It's their fault. It's their fault. Do you realize what living with her is like? Do you realize how annoying she is? It's not my fault that I look at this. I have to look at these things just to cope. I have to have these hobbies just to cope with living with her. It's her fault. Have you ever met her? Oh, he is a jerk. You've never had to spend any time with him or you would know he is a jerk. The way he talks to me, the way he talks to our kids, he's a jerk. Anybody else would walk into this home and be miserable. It's not my fault. And we blame shift. Even at times where those things may be true, we don't want to own our own faults. We don't want to own our own sin. We want to push it away. And that's exactly what Saul is doing here. It's their fault. And Samuel said, has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings? All right, Saul, let's get theological here. He begins to quote scripture. And he says, what are you saying? That the Lord delights in the burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Let's think about this, Saul. You're saying that God loves Offering ox, lamb, goats on the altar more than he loves your obedience? Because you know why we have to offer the animals? Because your disobedience. And now you've disobeyed for more animals. That doesn't make any sense. What God longs for is obedience. The animals, the smell... The blood is to remind you to obey, to do what God says. Notice the text continues. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. If you obeyed, you would not need the sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. Notice, for rebellion is the sin of divination. What he is saying here is sin is witchcraft. Sin is witchcraft. It's the same as pulling out a Ouija board. You ever thought about your sin in that way? When you choose to make the decision, I know better than God and I'm going to do this, you are engaged in witchcraft, divination. You are looking to another God to tell you what's better than the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, the God who has spoken in his word and been very clear. You are guilty of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry. To pursue upon the, 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 the grace of God in this way, it is witchcraft, Saul. 
Because you have rejected the word of God, he has also rejected you from being king. He is ripping from you the kingdom. Because you think that all you have to do is offer a goat. And God's just going to have to forgive you. Even though you planned this sin. And how many times do we do that? I need to be really happy in this moment. I need this right now. I'm going to do this and ask for forgiveness later. How often do you convince yourself it's okay to sin in the moment because God's got to forgive you? I mean, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. What else is he going to do? And you plan to sin based on forgiveness. And what Samuel says, no, the issue is obedience. Trust God and do what is right. That is the issue. And the heart that plans sin based on forgiveness isn't a heart that trusts God anyway. And if you don't trust God over here in planning the sin, you really don't trust God in the forgiveness anyway. You're using him as a gimmick. And some of us this morning, we are using God as a gimmick. You are guilty of gimmick repentance. And what God would say to you today is, is, is you think God longs for your church attendance more than obedience? In the sense that you're trying to cover up what you did last night? You, you think singing the song covers up your private internet browser history? You think gathering here together just covers those things up? You're using God for gimmick repentance, for gimmick forgiveness, and it's fake and it's artificial. I'm going to get lit tonight because I'm going to church tomorrow. It's going to be okay. That's pagan idolatry, that's witchcraft, that's divination. I'm going to put my money in the offering plate. Every week, I'm going to give and give and give because I know I shouldn't be living with this person. That, that's, that's not how it works. You're worshiping a false god. You're worshiping an idol who has the same image of you when you look in the mirror because it is you. Saul is guilty of idol worship. He's guilty of Saul worship. He doesn't even see his sin. And, and he's pushing it away. He's spiritualizing it. He's blaming other people. He thinks all he had to do was go and God had to forgive the people. No. And we see in verses 24 and 25, Saul is guilty of this very thing. He gets before Samuel and he pleads and he confesses his sin. And he says, Samuel, okay, I get it. I obeyed the people. I feared the people more than I feared God. And the point is, Saul... You're going to serve who you fear, man or God. And when you serve anyone but God, you end up serving no one, and you're going to be left alone. Verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of God. And notice, the Lord has rejected you from being king. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and notice, and tore it. Now, on the robe of Samuel, there would have been tassels that represented the law of God. Samuel rebukes him. The Lord has rejected you. He turns to go away. And last, 
effort to hold on to his kingdom, he reaches out and grabs the law of God and rips it. And notice what Samuel says. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And he has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And we're going to hear about that person in the next few chapters. But notice the glory of Israel will not lie and he will not have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Saul... God hasn't made a mistake. He doesn't make mistakes. This is a part of his plan. He's turning to give his kingdom to the king the people need. The true king of Israel doesn't repent as if he sinned. He always does what's right. And so then in verse 30, he says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return to me that I may bow before the Lord. And it it could be that here... Samuel brings Saul out before the people. And there's a congregational meeting. And he said to Saul, God always does what's right. He doesn't have to repent. I'm going to show you what is right. Verse 31, so Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed down before the Lord. Imagine this happening before the people. And then Samuel says, okay, bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites, out. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. I've heard word that Saul's in big trouble. And I, you know, I'm, I'm free. They're probably going to let me go. Probably going to let me go and do what I want. Saul made a mistake in keeping me alive. Notice, the text continues, verse 33. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, you are a part of a wicked people who has constantly oppressed others. So shall your mother be childless among women. And notice, he hacked Agag to pieces. Notice, before the Lord in Gilgal. Saul wanted to worship himself in Gilgal. Saul wanted to have offerings burnt in Gilgal. Here is the justice of God in Gilgal. As the prophet of God takes out a sword before the people of God and before Saul and begins to execute him. Begins to slice and dice him before the people of God in a bloody, gory mess. In a too mature for TV mess. This was not pretty. This is not Veggie Tales. This isn't a flannel graph. This is flesh and blood in a heaping, steaming pile of guts before the people of God. And Samuel steps back with blood on his sword and says, That's what the justice of God looks like. God doesn't repent. God always does what he says he'll do. And this is doing what is right, Saul. This is what you should have done. And then notice verse 34. Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went to his house in Gibeah. They part ways. Ramah was a place of weeping. Saul goes back to his hometown where he is known and he is praised. And notice Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. The word of God is totally separated from Saul. And Samuel grieved over Saul. And notice, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. It's not as though God is sitting back laughing. It's not as though God today is saying, that's a cool story, right? Yeah, you think Game of Thrones is great? Never seen it. Don't blame me of that. Don't accuse me of that. 
Y'all think all those TV shows are great? That's amazing. Hacking Agag to pieces. Isn't that cool? God's not doing that today. He's grieved because that's his people's sin in a bloody mess. That's his justice in a bloody mess. And while we've seen Saul repent to get what he wants, throughout the chapter we have seen the repentance of God that calls us to repent in godly sorrow. We see godly sorrow in God himself as he is grieved over his people's sin. We see it clearly here. We see the regret and sorrow of God and it calls us to be sorrow for our own sin. How can you see God weep over sin and not weep over your own sin? He's grieved over it. And notice what he does. He pursues justice for our sin. He hacks the enemy to pieces. That is the justice of God. We see the sorrow of God and we see the justice of God. And that's what godly repentance looks like in our own lives. You are to be sorrow over your sin. If you've never grieved over your sin, you don't understand your sin. You don't understand what it is. It's an offense to a holy God who created you. You don't understand repentance if it never involved sorrow. Some of you here today and you you think, no, I felt bad over the things I did, the people I hurt, the money it cost me, the embarrassment. That's not repentance. That's a part of it. It hurts. It's painful. But you stand before God and him alone and you say, against you I've sinned. Against you and you only have I sinned. Have you ever understood that your sin is a personal offense to God? And you grieved over it. Have you ever pursued justice for your sin? God pursues justice for Israel's sin here. He hacks Agag to pieces. He turns from his patience to justice in these moments. And as you think about repentance and sorrow over your sin, you must pursue justice for your sin. And I've got good news for you. There's a place where God turned. And there's good news that he turned. There's a place where the Father turned his face away and the Holy Everlasting One was hacked to pieces for you. It's good news today that your sorrow for your sin and your justice for your sin have kissed at Calvary. It's come together at Calvary. Yes, your sin is wicked. You should grieve over it. But yes, there's justice for your sin. Jesus has died under the wrath of God for your sin. And you come to Calvary understanding that's where God's sorrow and his justice meets. He delights in the sacrifice of Calvary. He doesn't delight in the sacrifice of animals, bulls, and goats. But he delights in the sacrifice of Jesus because it is the culmination of his obedience. Obedience and sacrifice come together in Jesus. And so I go to the cross and I agree with God. My sin is a nasty, disgusting, grotesque place. As you look upon the sinless Son of God, you you don't come to the cross and say, I want to keep exalting myself. I can't exalt myself. That's what my self-exalted looks like, the King of glory crucified. You don't make excuses for your sin. You don't spiritualize it. You don't protect yourself. You don't treat the cross like a gimmick. You don't trample on the blood of Jesus and just move on. You stand before the cross and say, yes, 
weeping. But yes, there is justice for me and Jesus. But some of you are here today and you're fighting to keep your own sin. You're fighting. You're grieving over losing your own kingdom. In Christ, God has fought and will not repent of giving you the kingdom. He won't. He grieves that Saul is king. He does not grieve in Christ that you're a part of the kingdom if you would hack your Agag to pieces. Let's pray.